Let's talk for and about the LGBT communities around the world. I'm Michael Ross and this is Straight Friendly. talking in so many of our episodes about different countries like Europe and the United States of America, but it was really important for us also to show more sides of the LGBT communities around the world. In this episode, we will be talking about India. Well, think about that. In terms of population, the biggest countries in the world are China, and just after that would be India. More than 17% of the whole population of the world lives in India, what makes it to be the second biggest country in the world. It has more than 1.3 billion civilians living in India. So if we would look at that from an LGBT perspective, 10% at least from such a huge population, that means that in India there are at least more than 96 million LGBT people. The production of this episode came to reality thanks to the support of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom in Jerusalem. And also, especially in this episode, we were working collaboratively with the FNF office in India, So huge thanks to Frank Hoffman and Shruti Sharma. And also thanks to our team, our production assistant, Jonathan Elkhuri, Sharon Agri, and our sound editor, Zach Aviad. They are a postgraduate in political science from University of Delhi. They have previously worked as faculty at the Gender Studies Department, Ambedkar University Delhi and as a consultant on a project to study non-normative sexuality and gender house at the Advanced Center for Women's Studies, TISS Bombay. They are interested in sex, feeling and the structure and narrative of living in the relation with forms of sociality, law and politics. Please welcome Vikram Sahahi. Hello, hello Vikram. Hello, hello Michael. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you Vikram. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I haven't died from the air in Delhi, so I'm all right. <laughs> so, and you're still with us. <laughs> yes. So, huge, huge pleasure. I have so many questions for you, but before we'll proceed to the so many questions we have, we have way too many questions to ask you on so many subjects, and it's probably it's too much for one episode. But before we'll go to the questions, I would love if you can please tell us a bit about yourself and also about your activism. So I am a researcher and a teacher in Delhi, India, though I've taught outside of Delhi as well. And I have been thinking about and working with the queer and trans movement in this country for about over a decade, about 13, 14 years, actually. But however, most of my engagement has been in the metropolitan cities of the country. So that's the kind of work that I do. I work uh, mostly with the law for queer and trans people, and I work against the law. Uh, for queer and trans people. So that's what I do. 
And what is the situation these days in India in terms of flow? Can we be who we want to be? Can we be ourselves? It's very difficult to answer that question because what you realize is that often laws that seem quite to be regulating different things are entangled and enmeshed with each other. And so what we see is that I have uh, now by the Supreme Court been given constitutional recognition and rights as a queer person, but we are seeing that you are only allowed to be the queer person if you are acceptable to the respectable majority. And so if your queerness is intersectional, then you will not feel as free as against if you were to be a respectable Hindu citizen in India. So queerness is good if it's quiet uh, and if it's uh, respectable and it's not good if it isn't. In terms of flow, we see many times in many countries that the situation is really different, mainly in terms of flow between different identities within the LGBTQ plus identities. So can you please explain us, uh, if we'll compare with other countries from, from what you know, because in also usually when we talk in media about LGBT communities, so many times, this for the place where I live in, so we hear a Western point of view. So for the people who are listening to us right now, and they have never been yet to India, I think next episode we have to record uh, face-to-face. <laughs> and uh, I still haven't been to, to India, but... Can you please explain us what it's like compared with other countries that many other people know about around the world? So it's very difficult uh, to even give an idea of India, uh, given how vast uh, this country is and, um, and how different uh, regions uh, experience uh, sexuality and gender differently. Uh, and then, of course, across the many identities, not just there isn't just LGBT, there are other identities that have more kind of uh, local resonances here. So so it is very difficult uh, to say say this uh, very clearly. So I'll try this to try, try to do this in three different stages. Let's just think about laws. Often in the conversation about LGBTQ rights globally, we tend to think about laws. The laws that are actually spoken about often are anti-sodomy laws, right? And we tend to emphasize about anti-sodomy laws. And in fact, even in the queer movement in India, it was the colonial anti-sodomy law, which was continued into the post-colonial state. When talking about the colonial, we're talking about the the way that the, the British impacted India? Absolutely. Absolutely. So and so the British made the penal code in this country. Uh, Lord Macaulay did so in 1860. Uh, and when even after independence, uh, the a large sections of the penal code remained the same. There have been sm- amendments here and there and so on and so forth. One of the laws that continued from Lord Macaulay's time in 1860 uh, was the law criminalizing uh, 
the love that dare not say its name and the anti sodomy law which was called section 377 i will just call it 377 hereafter and 377 was the law around which a large chunk of the queer movement organized its resources the struggle from the 1990s to about 2018 when the anti sodomy law was read down by the supreme court of india was very fundamentally focused on the anti sodomy law so this was a continuity with other countries globally however we in this country we have also seen that various laws target particular populations in different ways right so say for example there had been research even when the struggle against the anti sodomy law was happening and remember the anti sodomy law is articulated in such a way that it makes penetration kind of central to its imagination so even as it is used to discriminate against and oppress queer folks who are not participating in penetrative sex so the law says carnal and intercourse against the order of nature which means that penetration is important and because the understanding of penetration is so phallic often gay men and trans folks were at the center of the discrimination exploitation and oppression of 377 lesbian and queer women and trans men and some other kind of gender non binary identities were not necessarily criminalized by the letter of this law but other laws so often we would see that when two women would decide to have an independent life away from conservative households in which they grew up and live together they were called to the court by a habeas corpus petition a habeas corpus petition i don't know if people know is when you have to bring the body to court so it's generally applied for when people are detained and the next day they have to be produced in front of a jury or a magistrate so when such a thing would happen with people their families would tear apart the couple and not allow these women to meet inside the courtroom and finally there were particular laws that targeted the trans and hijra populations in india so in various states there were police acts that legislated control over pop- like populations like the trans community and this was also a remnant of the british colonial law because under the british rule hijras which were then called eunuchs are broadly understood within the trans framework were seen to be a criminal tribe that is that they were seen to be given to criminality from birth and so the research shows that the british were interested in controlling these vagrant nomadic criminal populations and so the criminal tribes act had criminalized the very existence of these communities so in fact it's very interesting that even in the use of the anti sodomy law gender non conforming people were particularly targeted or trans people were particularly targeted meaning until 2018 and continue to even after mm-hmm. because trans people in india are particularly excluded from respectable conversations and respectable neighborhoods so they are yet to get access to education and employment in the same way that other populations have possibly managed or can manage and the only thing that a lot of the trans fem or the hijra community is able to rely on for livelihood 
is often begging and sex work. The begging could be on the street side or could be to go to festivities and offer blessings for some money. Um, and in fact, trans men also are given very ad hoc work and so on and so forth. So they remain really absolutely the most marginalized within the within the queer community. And so because they are seen to be beggars and sex workers, hijras particularly suffer a lot of violence, both on the street and also in terms of law. So there are laws around trafficking, about begging and so on and so forth and sex work in India, which is not decriminalized. And that's what I was trying to say, that it is never one law that affects one person. There are various laws that create oppression upon marginalized communities. Vikram, I would like to ask, yeah. we're talking about the law, but I am wondering what it's like the daily life. Because many times, many countries, there are issues about the laws. And there's a difference in what the life looks like. I mean, like, do you see any changes in the past years? Like, is there a culture, parties, festivals, or it all has to be very, very hidden? Or like, do police officers arrive and also outside of the big cities and they really check the stuff? And there's also some underground or more open, are they like parades and open stuff? What it's, what it's like? Absolutely. And you know, it's a very good question because, you know, even in the fight against the anti-sodomy law, there weren't enough official registered arrests. There were only in the last 200 years, less than 200 such cases. So the case that we had to make in the court was to say that it's not whether or not people are convicted or arrested. It is the fact that the existence of the law creates a culture of impunity against for violence against queer and trans people. So it's very important to think about culture in India. Even cultures, because it, from what it sounds like, there are so many different cultures in, in India. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that the question that you're asking about culture in everyday life is even important to the life of the law, because even when the struggle against decriminalization of queer identities was happening in India, the struggle against the anti-sodomy law, we had to make a case that even though there were very few convictions against under this particular anti-sodomy law, it did not mean that the law did not offer impunity to people to oppress and exploit queer and trans people, which meant that the law allowed for cultures of blackmail it allowed for police violence, it allowed for extortion and so on and so forth, especially on working class, queer and trans people, people who were seen on the street. So it is very important to think about the many forms of life and everyday life and cultures in India across the various identities. But largely, you're right, there are big parades, before the pandemic at least. There were pride parades. There are clubs that have queer nights, etc. There are film festivals. There is a lot of advertising that panders to queer people. There are There is some cinema over the many decades, but produced with greater fervor nowadays. There's also more news and so on and so forth. Yes, absolutely. But these are of two kinds. And that's really important. In the parades, etc., the parades that go smoothly are the parades that just speak about LGBT people. 
but any pr- parades that try to draw relationships between various other struggles that are happening in the country say workers struggles or student struggles and so on and so forth where the brunt of police violence of cases being slapped against them and so on and so forth in fact we had last year a trans non binary person being picked up from the pride parade for saying certain things in support and solidarity with other struggles and this is also the case with movies so way back in 1997 we had a film made by a a director called deepa mehta who made this film called fire which showed a relationship between two women within the same household that movie as you can see is way before any of the litigation around the anti sodomy law happened and so that movie was not simply protested because of sexual vulgarity but also because the protagonists had hindu names and so on and so forth so various conservative right wing groups burnt posters vandalized cinema halls and so on and so forth so what was the thing where that you think that made those clashes happening there the hindu the protagonists in the film were named after two mythological slash goddesses in the hindu pantheon they are very common names in india but they also happen to be shared by these mythic figures and so it was the relationship between sexuality and conservative hindu identity that really brought these protests together and so there were groups led by the same groups that govern the country today and so it it was not acceptable to them that hindu women will be shown in such vulgar light and that really is very important in the memory of the queer movement in india because it was a big film a big mainstream film that had dared to no matter its uh, content dared to kind of talk about something like this and show it and so on and so forth and so it and the protest against it actually gained gave it far more significance you know because then once the hindu right wing groups had protested against it queer movements queer people across the country wrote in newspapers and also kind of organized against this kind of censorship and violence and vandalism so that's really important and that's what really continues in the media today as well is that you will still find queer news in the newspapers if it's about the right like in the heteronormative uh, media yeah yeah in the indian heteronormative media you can find also articles and stuff related to lgbt plus people right yes yes and what it's like the indian media isn't as sensitive when it comes to especially language and so on and so forth it's kind of still drawing on that but there will be there are occasional kind of life stories and so on and so forth but a lot of otherwise it's just a lot of respectable people doing respectable things so you know there'll be the news about the first district magistrate who's a trans woman or there'll be the story about the first uh, or about the challenge we recently had a trans woman challenge the medical curriculum in this country because it teaches very queer phobic things and so on and so forth so those kinds of things make it but say police violence against queer and trans sex workers will not make it to the news right so so very particular stories that are that are happy or progressive in that kind of way are still shown but r- stories about the realities of people at the intersection working class people oppressed caste people etc 
people who are fighting other struggles as well. It's not that queer people only fight queer struggles. They're also part of anti-nuclear movements. They're also part of land rights movements and so on and so forth. But they never make it to the news. So it's a very divided media. So maybe that helps. us who don't live and know much about the LGBTQ plus communities in India, what differs the LGBT community in India by, for example, the United States of America? I feel like if someone's kind of talking about India, one of the things that's really important about the queer and trans struggle is precisely that, I mean, I hate analogizing, but I'll have to analogize. You know, like how you have the queer and trans struggle in the U.S. predominantly run by white people. In India, it is run by caste Hindu people majoritarily. The representative voices, myself included, queer and trans people are often of this particular respectable caste community. And so marginalized voices, which are both oppressed caste, but even say Muslim and Christian people and Adivasi and indigenous people are actually completely left out of the conversation and don't actually get that platform. In India, it's not laws simply around sodomy, etc. So for example, we have a marriage petition in court. I don't know if you know this. There are petitions in the court for the recognition of LGBT marriages, etc. And even though we've had previously marriages happen in the country, we have these petitions in court for formal recognition. And one of the petitions... filed in the courts is about whether Hindu law should allow for these marriages. So even the gay marriage question is one about respectable Hindu caste Hindus and not really a representative secular and democratic conversation. And I feel like we must think about the queer and trans struggle in India as fractured on the line of caste. And it's really, really important uh, that we think about that. If we'll take, for instance, the situation of different gay couples, okay, men, and in terms of uh, getting married in India, do you think that there is a difference between, for instance, a gay couple from one specific uh, class with another lower class, there will be a difference also in terms of flow in India? Not so much in terms of law, but in terms exactly in what you were saying, the everyday life. You know, mm-hmm. so for example, if you are caste Hindu in India, then it's easier to find housing, for example. You know, you can take like rental housing because you are seen to be respectable and one of us. Whereas if you are oppressed caste, then it's very difficult to find. And so then it's queerness and oppressed caste identities come together. And so you are not... And in that intersection, you are completely left out because you are not seen to be respectable than one of us. Similarly, with, say, queer and Muslim, doubly hard to find housing, right? Um, and so on and so forth. So the reason why I am able to live in, an, in a rented house is because I speak very fluent English uh, and I look respectable and I have a caste Hindu surname, right? Even though I have a mixed lineage, but I have a caste Hindu surname. That's not what, what does what does that mean? I'm sorry. Oh, like, I, I can mean, they recognize my, your caste? Yeah, like exactly. The, exactly. So you and, can tell and, people's and caste. And from which part of I, I'm sorry, but I, I have no idea about the except for reading about 
casts. But how right. does it affect your daily life, especially? So you have to realize that uh, caste Hindus dominate this country. They, they run. So think about India like Brazil, right? So even though uh, white people are minority population wise in Brazil, right? They're everywhere on news media and so on and so forth, right? There are no kind of uh, black people on television and so on and so forth. That is exactly the case with India where caste Hindus sit on the creme de la creme jobs. They sit in the bureaucratic services. They, they sit in the media houses. They're part of the judiciary, etc. And oppressed caste people are not part of these institutions at all. Uh, except the bureaucracy where there is reservation, where there is affirmative action, right? But then also they don't get promoted to the higher positions because there is still not enough affirmative action in promotions. Um, so what happens is that the media, culture industries, the judiciary, the corporate jobs, etc., land in this country, housing, etc., is all controlled by caste Hindus, Right. Uh, and they get to decide who's in and who's out. And they like giving it to their own brethren rather than give it to oppressed caste people or Muslims or Christians and so on and so forth. Uh, they give it to Muslims and Christians if they also happen to be of the ca- of the same caste as them, right? And so it's precisely my trans identity gets mediated and negotiated by the fact that I'm actually uh, high up in the caste order according to these Hindus, right? If I was not, then I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the kind of jobs I get. I wouldn't have the kind of housing I have. Uh, I wouldn't be able to be in the kind of networks where FNF can see me, uh, and so on and so forth. Because all of these ways of visibility, of recognition, etc., are dependent on, uh, caste identity. Vikram, I, I, I have to ask a, a personal question talking mm. about uh, the classes. I, I, have to, I, I want to ask something really personal about you. Okay. okay. Do you feel lucky? Uh, not really, no. I don't think it's, I, I mean, not in these times at least. I don't think I've, I, in the heyday of, you know, we have a very repressive regime in this country uh, and every day it's getting more and more difficult to live freely in this country uh, and I'm not, I don't align as myself being, as with being trans or generally, 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 you know, like, I don't know if you know this, but recently right wing groups have particularly attacked me for a speech I had given many years ago and they took photo, uh, intimate photographs from my social media and blasted them all over the, their right wing newspapers, shaming and humiliating me. And so on and so forth. But this was not because, because I'm trans. It's the shaming, of course, is because I'm trans and my body is trans. And, but they were shaming me because I had said that Hinduism is an oppressive religion. And that's why they were trolling me, right? So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to be free by in and of oneself. And collectively, people who have a democratic vision different from that of this particular government uh, are persecuted. My own housemates uh, were charged with terrorism and just till two months ago were in prison for over a year as under trials. 
they were charged with sedition laws uh, and so on and so forth so for actually just showing up in solidarity with uh, protesters who were protesting the recent changes to the citizenship law in this country so i don't actually feel lucky at all in these times at all i think i am lucky uh to be alive maybe and to still be free and not be incarcerated but that that's a ticking bomb and we don't know how that is uh going to turn out so i i'm not i don't particularly i'm lucky at this moment but i don't know if that luck when that luck will run out wow i'm really sorry to hear that <laughs> it mm. sounds really 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 difficult I guess it is also somehow related to, to, to your activism. Uh, we are, unfortunately, we are about to finish and I would love to ask one more question. Okay, sure. In, in terms of uh, media, from my uh, experience uh, hosting this podcast uh, with uh, different um, activists and scholars around the world, uh, what I do find sometimes that making a change through law and by changing the state, sometimes can be way slower than making change through technology. For instance, the way like dating apps can affect us or being exposed to media. I don't know what it's like the local media in India, if also like through uh, things that uh, people can find through YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, Facebook and so on. If there uh, are Uh, more positive things to Siver and I'm wondering if if there are so and if you can give us a few examples and then I'm already saying <laughs> the next question for that I hope you remember if that I will remind okay, okay. <laughs> but what it's like also in in is like does media from other countries let's say media coming from the US or Europe about queer people around the world, It, does it also affect does it get to uh, different places in India also outside of the big cities uh, and for instance like taking for example uh, Rupal's drag race or pose which uh, are so popular some wondering uh, what is the access to information let's say for queer people around India including also outside of the big cities through technology both internal and external right so I I completely agree uh, I don't think And I think even the queer movement in India is cognizant of the fact that if we were to solely focus on the law, then we would not be able to bring about the change that we need to. And so uh, the struggle is imagined in the law in in our on in the media, especially because so much media is seen at home and the street uh, and so on and so forth. So you're absolutely right that the media is a very important thing. There are many things to say about this, so I'll try to. kind of say very big two very big things one is that I don't know if you know this but India is the India as it is recognized polit- as a political unit also saw the world's longest running internet shutdown right uh, in Kashmir uh, so um, it ran it is the longest internet shutdown in the world um, permanently for how long? So it no not currently they opened it very recently but for about more than a year uh, the internet was shut down uh, you know China makes the news because China is a particular demon in the world but India is never seen in the same way as some of these countries and so 
because india has elections we think that it is democratic but actually we we don't we don't think of these other things and we also know that the digital divide in this country is very huge right so people in cities have internet and so on and so forth and as soon as you step outside that circuit internet is gone there is no there is not even there not even roads in very large parts of this country right so 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 then the access to internet is a conversation about people in cities in mainland india and any of the peripheries any of the rural indias any of the any of the uh, poorer poor poorer parts of this country this conversation cannot happen right so yes the middle class in india is about 10% it's the top 10% so it's a strange thing to call it middle class but middle class is about 10% of this country and that 10% is also majoritarily caste hindus okay so then it's a very particular kind of population that has the money to spend on consuming media right and so when things like there is global visibility of queer people they make it to india of course but it's consumed by a very particular population and that has influenced cultural makers in india so we have we are seeing films being made about queer people and trans people we are seeing netflix shows and so on and so forth because we are part of this kind of global trend right but those again tell stories that will be to the liking of this particular population that i mentioned so say for example a lot of india actually has a lot of mobile phone connectivity okay we're a very large country but we have mobile phone connectivity and people watch things on their mobile phones a very popular form of queer and trans cultural production was happening on platforms like tiktok tiktok was very popular 2 years ago till tiktok was banned in india and tiktok is banned in india right and tiktok was something that working class and various rural and other kinds of marginalized communities were using to produce like dance videos and talking to people and it was really cool but because tiktok was banned in india's confrontation with china we lost out on that population um and so internet remains very important it's also in the internet whatsapp sector is also used by conservative forces to create propaganda against marginalized communities but we also know that the algorithm in this country on twitter on instagram and facebook prefers certain kinds of communities over others so even if they have access to instagram facebook or twitter etc they will not be able to see the kind of stuff that would be representative of the largest majority of this country which is actually uh, oppressed caste and other marginalized communities right caste hindus are only about 3 to 15% of this population right so in using the algorithm to create a lot of hate speech right and discriminatory speech and so on and so forth so actually now it's more likely that you will encounter hate speech against marginalized communities than you would encounter good stuff even though that is being produced does that answer your question yeah i think that what we see that even if there are different attempts or uh, possibilities to make change for technology and uh, media that many times can connect between people 
It also can lead to a, to a struggle and difficulties. Although, in my opinion, even like seeing one something and knowing that you are not alone and there are more people like you, I think this is really important, especially in rural places which are outside of uh, the big cities. And Vikram, I had no idea about so many of the things that uh, you shared with us. I had more questions, but probably we'll have to keep them for our next episode. And I want to thank you very, very, very much. Actually, in the next episode, we will be talking about the way that big LGBT plus media networks in the Western world, the way they affected the Western world, like the US, Europe and other countries. I really hope and I probably we will continue the discussion with the people in our next episode talking about also India. Vikram, thank you so much for the so many insights you gave us. And I do feel lucky that uh, we had the chance finding you. It was not easy, I have to say. It was also thanks to Jonathan here in the team and the FNF teams both in Jerusalem and in India. So uh, Vikram, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a lovely hour that we spent together. Thank you. How, how, do, how do we say thank you in your language? Uh, shukriya. Shukriya. Yeah. Shukriya. Yeah. <laughs> so huge, huge, huge shukriya. <laughs> thank you very much. Shukriya. This was another episode of Straight Friendly Global. You can find more episodes and listen to our podcast on your favorite listening app, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Echo Podcasts, Alexa Media Player, Google Podcasts, and so on. <laughs>